Hello and welcome to the Presto Classical Podcast. In his anniversary year, I've been searching for fresh perspectives on Ludwig van Beethoven, both in print and on record. And I'm very pleased to say that I've found one courtesy of today's guest, the Professor of Music at Oxford University, Henry Fellow of St. Catherine's College, Oxford, and author of a new book, Beethoven, A Life in Nine Pieces. Welcome to the show, Professor Laura Tunbridge. Hello, it's nice to be here. What first appealed you to the music of Beethoven? I mean, like a lot of musicians, Beethoven's always been there. And so I suppose from a relatively young age, you're aware of him. And then studying music, I didn't start out as somebody who wrote about Beethoven, but because I wrote about Robert Schumann and song and 19th century and 20th century music, Beethoven was always the touchstone. And people kept on comparing different figures to him and obviously comparing different types of music to him. So he's always been lurking in the background. And it was a real treat for me in some ways to think, actually, what happens if I do now look at Beethoven from this more varied perspective and background and think about why he's become such an influential and uh, controversial figure in some ways? Because I think now, although he's still heavily revered, he's also somebody whose legacy has been questioned or people have thought about actually why do we value Beethoven so much and in these particular ways. Rather than attempt to deliver a blow-by-blow account of Beethoven's life, Laura Tunbridge's book instead takes nine snapshots of Beethoven's career based on nine of Beethoven's compositions, each one revealing new aspects of the man, the music and early 19th century Vienna, while at the same time exposing some of the cliches about Beethoven that have accumulated over the years. And on the show today, we'll be taking a whistle-stop tour through the book and therefore Beethoven's career. Mention of Beethoven and the number nine obviously brings to mind the nine symphonies. And although the first piece isn't Beethoven's first symphony, it was performed alongside it. Laura, the Opus 20 septet was written for the unusual combination of violin, viola, cello, double bass, clarinet, horn and bassoon. Can you briefly explain the circumstances of its composition? It was composed to be performed at the first benefit concert that Beethoven gave for his own benefit. They were called academies and these were done... Uh, for musicians to support themselves through selling tickets. It was premiered alongside the first symphony and the first piano concerto. And in some ways, it shows that Beethoven not only could write those large-scale works, but also something like chamber music. Obviously, it's bigger than a quartet or a trio. So in that way, it looks more to the serenade or the divertimenti tradition of creating music to be played outside or for public entertainment. But it brought it into the concert hall. So he was showing his range in some ways. So he could write these large-scale symphonies. He could also write something more akin to chamber music that would sell within more domestic and entertainment environments. So he was writing in some ways to sort of show his wares and to go between private and public and also lighter and more serious modes. And it became very popular throughout Beethoven's career. Yeah, so much so he was fed up a bit by the end and thought, actually, I've written much more interesting music. Why are people still going on about this one? So yes, but what's interesting then is that Why was that piece so popular then? But it's not a piece that we know well now. That's changed perhaps due to changing musical tastes within the classical going public. Yeah, changing tastes and also changes in the types of ensembles that play these days. Those kinds of larger scale chamber groups are just not quite so common as they were then.
That was Beethoven's Septet, performed by the Barclay Ensemble. Now, Beethoven has gone down in history as a famously irascible figure, and the eventual dedication of Laura's second piece was certainly a result of that. Laura, the Kreutzer Sonata, would perhaps be known today as the Bridgetower Sonata, were it not for Beethoven falling out with the famous violinist George Bridgetower. In general, what was Beethoven's relationship like with his fellow musicians? It varied, as he said, he was quite irascible. So quite often he would make firm friendships that would then fall apart as they had some quarrel over something or other. And I don't think he was always very easy to work with. Um, That said, certain musicians were really loyal to him. So they were prepared to put up with a lot. And I think he took advantage of that as well. Um, But yeah, stories like the Kreutzer Sonata, I mean, it was originally composed for Bridgetower and then they fell out or Beethoven decided that Kreutzer was a better bet in terms of selling the music. So those sorts of stories reveal how closely and how important and influential fellow musicians were in terms of the type of music he performed and composed as well. Would Beethoven have composed more than just one subsequent violin sonata had he not fallen out with Bridgetower perhaps? Oh, maybe. Um, It's hard to tell always, but if you think about it, his next, the remaining violin sonata uh, was dedicated to Pierre Rode, who was another famous violinist of the day. That was about a decade or more later. Um, And so there's a sense in which he wrote it because there was somebody who would play it. So there's always a pragmatic aspect to it, but also obviously an idea that musicians, other musicians influenced what Beethoven did. And were a lot of Beethoven's compositions for duos due to musical relationships? I think mostly, yes. I mean, partly because if they were there, if those relationships were there, then they could be dedicated to people and also people will play them and through that promote them. So there's always a sort of canny edge to it as well. Very good. Well, here is an excerpt from Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata performed by Anne-Sophie Mutter and Lambert Orkis. Laura's third piece is Beethoven's Third Symphony, and while much of the discourse about this groundbreaking work is focused on Beethoven's relationship with Napoleon, audiences at the time were unaware of this connection, and reception mainly focused on the work's complexity. But Laura, was the difficulty in understanding the Eroica actually due in part to poor orchestral performance standards in early 19th century Vienna? Well, they were very different orchestral standards, partly because the rehearsal schedule was, I mean, there were very, very few rehearsals. The idea of preparing something to something like perfection that we're used to now was just not on the agenda. The Eroica Symphony is a bit different because Prince Lobkowitz gave Beethoven the opportunity to rehearse this new and complex piece and to try it out in the music room he had in his palace. But that said, most pieces were performed on one rehearsal, maybe two, if you were lucky. And if you think about how hard these pieces are to play, it's no surprise that quite often the premieres didn't go quite as well as you would have wanted. 
one might suggest that if one wanted to hear a truly authentic performance of the Third Symphony, one would need to head down to a local amateur performance rather than a performance by a professional uh, symphony orchestra with the high standards these days. Yeah, I mean, something more like a sort of spirited, good and energetic um, amateur performance. And also bear in mind that, I mean, there were professional musicians playing in these ensembles, but there were also what they called dilettantes, so people who had day jobs but also played well. And that was the constitution of the orchestras. So, you know, it wasn't uniform in terms of skill. And there are stories about symphony premieres where, you know, it's still obvious that at the back of the second violin, some people are just faking it, which is true today if you look at amateur or student orchestras. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, let's have an excerpt from the Eroka Symphony performed to a much higher standard than one might have experienced in the 19th century Vienna, this time by the Chamber Orchestra of Europe, conducted by Nikolaus Arnkor. On the freezing cold evening of December 22nd, 1808, audiences gathered for perhaps the most legendary concert in music history. Premieres of the 5th and 6th symphonies and the 4th piano concerto ensued, but the grand finale of the evening was the performance of the Choral Fantasia, a strange hybrid piece that begins with a piano improvisation and ends with what could be considered a dry run for the Choral Symphony. Laura, I believe this is the only case of an improvisation by Beethoven working its way into a published score. Or is it? Aha, uh-huh. not quite. So he made his name initially in Vienna as an improviser, particularly at the piano, and obviously as a virtuoso pianist. But you, what you can see from some of the sketchbooks is that little exercises that he worked on for his improvisations found their way into the kinds of figurations he wrote into pieces, and also cadenzas for his own concertos, but also for things like Mozart concertos, show that improvisation was key to the way he thought about how he composed. And he evidently also composed at the keyboard, particularly early on. So it's really, really hard to say that improvisation didn't feed into his pieces. Also, occasionally in performance, he would take it on himself to add and improvise um, on the piece, sometimes to the disgruntlement of fellow musicians. So the wind quintet, um, opus 16, I think, um, is a good example of that, where apparently in the final movement, he just ran wild. Other musicians must have had to put down their instruments and thought, oh no, Beethoven's off again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that role must have significantly decreased as Beethoven's deafness got worse and he stopped performing as much. So he's perhaps you could perhaps understand his late style, it changes because he can't improvise and perform, put that into composition. Yeah, although if you think about it, it's such an integral part of the way that he thinks about how he makes music. And it's not exactly like he'd forget how to do that. He might not have the same sort of sonic experience of it, but actually it probably still feeds into it. He doesn't give his final performance at the piano until 1815, which is perhaps later than you would expect, given that, you know, he announces his deafness, or at least we know about his deafness from around 1800. So there's quite a long decline before he actually gives up public performance altogether. So let's have an excerpt of the choral fantasia, performed by Christian Bezedenhut, the Freiburger Baroque Orchestra, and conducted by Pablo Herras Casado. Thank you. 
Although he admitted that he wasn't a natural at it, song composition actually forms a large part of Beethoven's compositional output, and you've picked the song Andy Geliebte to the Beloved as one of your nine pieces. Beethoven's long-standing but ultimately futile attempts to marry are much discussed. Would it be fair to say, Laura, that compared to Mozart, Beethoven had a somewhat idealised view of love and romance, and perhaps, dare I say it, of women in general? Well, that's a tricky one. So certainly there are some women who he idealised. Um, I mean, we know that from the way he writes to people in his letters. According to his friends, he fell in and out of love quite often and quite quickly. And also we do know, well, on the one hand, he had a really good friendships with some women, quite often the wives of friends, but also potential patrons or people who have supported him. So people like Countess Erdedy or Nanette Stryker, who was one of the piano makers in Vienna, were really helpful to him and helped out sort of domestically and professionally and personally. Um, then, like many other men of the time, he would visit uh, brothels in the city. So women well, women are complicated women were complicated for Beethoven um, and I think it's it would be wrong to say that it was one kind of particular version that he always idealised and I think there are certain figures who he certainly did but I think that's probably true for most of us Was that perhaps due in part to Beethoven's uh, enjoyment of Goethe's Werther as a young man? Or maybe, I mean, if you th- if you look at the literature of the time and all the kind of grand love affairs that are documented in those or imagined in those, you can see that how people express themselves is dependent on how they're modelling themselves after poems and literature and art and songs. I mean, a lot about songs is actually to do with not only expressing yourself to somebody directly, but also thinking about how you make romantic overtures to somebody or how, you know, you would write a love letter. You can see all these things combining. And that really complicates trying to make any direct connection to someone's biography. Perhaps you would say that Beethoven basically had an idealised view of humanity in general. Who else, who else could have written Ode to Joy? Even after, the, even after all Beethoven's sufferings and tribulations with people, at the end of his career, he still uh, has the idea of vision that all humanity can become uh, brothers and sisters and fraternal. Yeah, and uh, those kinds of idealistic themes run throughout a lot of the readings of the time and the kinds of texts that he's attracted to. Well, here is Beethoven's Andy Galibta, Woo 140, performed by Matthias Gerner and Jan Lizecki. Now, Beethoven's most famous depiction of feminine virtue is, of course, Leonora, the hero of Fidelio, an opera whose composition Beethoven admitted gave him no end of trouble. The work premiered as Leonora in 1805 underwent heavy revision and was re-premiered to much greater success in 1814 as Fidelio. Laura, the political landscape of Europe had altered dramatically in these nine years, as in 1805 Napoleon seemed unstoppable and Vienna itself was under French occupation. But by the time Fidelio premiered, Napoleon had, for the time being at least, been defeated and sent into exile. Does this in part explain the difference in reception for what is a very political opera? Yeah, it does. And it's 
tricky sometimes to kind of disentangle these things. So when it's first premiered in 1805, as you say, the French have occupied Vienna and there's a load of French officers who go to the first performance rather than Beethoven's usual aristocratic patrons. So their sympathies are quite different, obviously. And then when it's heard again in 1814, Napoleon has been captured and the Congress of Vienna, the kind of diplomatic reshaping of Europe is about to happen. And the way that you think about who saves whom and who's heroic in this piece changes quite a lot as a result. So you have lots of different things going on. It's set in Spain. It's based on a French revolutionary story. Actually, who has the greater power here? Is it Fernando who comes on at the end and liberates everybody? Is it Leonora going to save her husband as an individual? And, you know, it's it seems by 1814 that there's more of a sense of the enlightened ruler being important rather than the revolutionary individual. And that's Beethoven's relationship with Napoleon is something that is incredibly complex. He, he dedicates the, or tends to dedicate the Eroica to Napoleon. But by 1814, he's write, almost writing the music for the Congress of Vienna, which is putting all these ancien regimes back on the throne. Yeah. And I mean, that is so interesting in terms of how we think about his politics now, because obviously they shifted through his career, but also shifted because the situation in Europe and Vienna was changing so much. I mean, you have to bear in mind the Napoleonic Wars have been grinding on and on and really affected daily life. So you can understand why Napoleon would go from being hero to villain quite quickly. I think you say that actually Beethoven's views remained quite fixed, but it's the world changed around him. So as a young man, he was very much for Napoleon. And then after seeing the destruction of 25 years, almost of conflict in Europe, well, you know, it, it really, it, his opinion had changed on Napoleon because Napoleon had himself changed. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that's a, a nice way of describing it. And I think it is important to recognise that our relationships with all of these political figures change um, through, throughout circumstances changing and yeah the challenges of life I suppose and of course the role of religion as well I mean by the end of Fidelia as you say the minister turns up and you know almost perhaps saves the day it reminds me of Wilhelm Furtwängler's comment that Fidelio is a mass not an opera its emotions touch the borders of religion and again this is sort of restoration of pre-Napoleonic values on Europe because the French Revolution was very much opposed to religion and the, the clergy and whatnot yeah, it's interesting if you put the choruses in the context of religious performance, that's slightly different from the minister being a political figure. So you also want to think about actually whether the communal voices, whether the prisoners' chorus or the townspeople are more significant than the individual heroes and heroines who've been doing most of the dramatic action. Well, here is the prisoners' chorus from Fidelia, performed by the Lucerne Festival Orchestra, the Arnold Schoenberg Choir, and conducted by Claudio Abado.
As someone interested in technological change, one of the most interesting chapters in the book for me was the chapter on the Hammerclavier Piano Sonata, which at the time of composition was technically unplayable on the majority of pianos of the day, as they lacked the octave range required. Laura, did Beethoven meet resistance from his publishers for writing music that could only be played on the very latest pianos? Quite often you see little signs that he he knows that it's unperformable on quite a lot of instruments, but so he gives an alternative. You see that in some of the late piano sonatas. Um, and then the other thing that he does is actually more flexible than you might imagine. So with the Hammerklavier, um, he's trying to get it published in London and actually says to the prospective publishers in London, I don't mind if you split it up and you can turn round the order of the movements. And in fact, it ends up being published in two parts with the last movement uh, being done separately as an introduction of fugue and then the others in a different order to what we know now. So in some ways, he, I mean, he could be a pain with publishers and was very demanding, but also in some ways prepared, so long as his music got out there, um, to make some um, negotiations that would allow that to happen. So, so yeah, um, it's a complicated story, as always. Yeah. You sense a conflict between Beethoven wanting to sort of write avant-garde music and at the same time needing to pay the bills. Well, yeah, always. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, runs throughout, I think. The interesting story that you tell of the book that the Broadwood piano shipped to Trieste and then over the Alps. Could this be considered a sort of early marketing by Broadwood pianos? Only the, only Broadwood pianos can play the very latest Beethoven piano sonata, for example. Yeah, I think there is a certain sense in which these things go hand in hand. You know, if you if you can play the most avant-garde music, it must be good. It's the best technology available. Yeah. And here is an excerpt from the Hammerclavier performed by Maurizio Pellini. No discussion of Beethoven could be complete without discussion of his sublime late style, but is the Mrs. Solemnis actually atypical or unique in Beethoven's late style, in that it looks backwards towards the Baroque in both idea and execution as much as it looks forwards? So one of the things about late style is that it's out of time, and that means that it looks forwards, but also that it can look back. And you can see through the way we write about late style or think about it, is that quite often some of the fundamental parts of it, like counterpoint, actually have a long long view backwards, back to Bach or Palestrina or whoever. And so the mass is unusual, partly because of its religious aspect, overtly so, it's got a religious function, um, and also because it does have these huge fugues. But then fugues in other pieces can become radically modern. So... Um, it has a slightly different cast than others, partly because of its function. And it's definitely late style because of the way it's looking backwards. But that also is partly because it's a mess. I'm sorry, it's a rather convoluted way of saying, <laughs> yet again, it's, yeah. you know, you can read this in so many different ways, um, looking backwards and forwards. I don't think it's unique in terms of his late style, but I think it is an important part, both of the Mrs. Solemnis and his late style more generally. To what extent was that composition of the Mrs. Solemnis inspired by Beethoven's religious worldview? And was this perhaps inspired by sort of Kantian enlightenment thought and ideas? I think there's a kind of tension there because 
he starts out writing a mass for Archduke Rudolf for a ceremony. And so it has to comply to those conventions. And then it's, I mean, it's Beethoven who read quite widely around religions. He was interested in nonconformist ideas and also world religions. And so it's tempting then to read the music in the way that he sets the text as reflecting some of those more individualistic and subjective views. Um, yeah, I mean, actually pinpointing that is quite tricky. And so I think um, obviously it is a religious piece. For that reason, you assume that it reflects something of his own religious beliefs. On the other hand, it's also working within a particular liturgical framework. You definitely get the sense in the Agnes Day that this is Beethoven confronting all these years of war that he had lived through and these very earnest and stringent, quite strong demands for peace. You definitely get the sense that this is actually Beethoven finally demanding some peace. Yes, those moments which are really emphatic and expressive and they seem to kind of come out of something far deeper than simply writing to a formula. Yes, I think that's true. Here is an excerpt of Beethoven's Mrs. performed by the Monteverdi Choir, the Orchestra Revolutionaire et Romantique, conducted by John Elliot Gardner. Igor Stravinsky famously declared that the Grosse Fuga, Laura's final piece, was a contemporary piece of music that will remain contemporary forever. But how aware do you think Beethoven was of his own legacy? Would he be surprised, pleased, that he is still so venerated today? I'm sure he'd be delighted. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's interesting in terms of his age, because they were much more aware of music history than people had been previously. And you can see that in Beethoven by, for instance, his interest in Bach's music. And so previously, it had been the case that for the most part, you heard music of the time. All music was contemporary, and previous generations were just forgotten. Whereas by the time you get to Beethoven, you have Bach, Mozart, Haydn, figures like Gluck being remembered and still being performed. And so you have what you might see now as a kind of museum process um, happening within the concert hall. And Beethoven's part of that and benefits from that. So he can see that he is going to be performed again and again. Actually, going back to the Septet, if you think about it, as a piece that's premiered in 1800, is still being performed in the late 1820s. Okay, he's not very pleased (laughs) about that, but you can see that he knew that his reputation was going to last and then some of the comments he makes say for about about the Razumovsky quartets and he talks about it being music for a later age that this is these are pieces that people might not understand now but they will come to understand that and i think that's where you get to the stravinsky point about it remaining contemporary these are still quite challenging works and it's interesting thinking about how many pieces of music through history actually retain that sense of being radical and still challenge you each time you hear them and i think that's one of the things that marks out say the grosse fuga as being a particularly special work. And finally, while he obviously wouldn't have wished for the events of 2020, given his sense of humour, would he have found the scheduling and then subsequent cancelling of public events to mark his 250th birthday secretly quite amusing? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I yes, I can see there being some 
irony or sarcasm about that. Um, and I'm sure he would have thought, well, yet again, I've been underappreciated, which was a constant <laughs> thread of his letters. Um, on the other hand, I mean, I think it's hard to see him as finding much humour about it. I mean, he was a freelancer and uh, like the mm. freelancers now, it's just really difficult to see how you can find the humour in this particular situation. And here is an excerpt from the Grossifuga, performed by the Takash Quartet. Thank you very much for your book and for your time, Laura. What are you currently working on? Actually, I have a new project. It's in its early stages about string quartets, um, oh. about the history of the string quartet, but also about the sound of the quartet and how we value particular ensembles and what we hear when we see, um, say, the Borodin who've been around for generations of players and actually how we make sense of those legacies and performance practices. An opportunity, obviously, there for even more discussion about Beethoven. Well, yes, but also actually the nice <laughs> thing is that I can also uh, write about all kinds of music up to the present day. So I can bring in contemporary stuff as well. And I'm really excited about that. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to it. And I can personally highly recommend Beethoven, A Life in Nine Pieces by Laura Tunbridge for anybody wanting a fresh perspective on one of the most discussed figures in music history. And the book is available from our Presto bookstore. And of course, recordings of all the nine pieces are also available from Presto Classical. Thank you very much, Laura. Thank you. Thanks to my producer, Matt Groom, and thanks to you for listening. Mm-hmm.